Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. Again, invite those who are able to please stand for this lesson. It is from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the Word of God. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, so that you may live." I will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We hear now our first, uh, first of two readings for our second lesson, first from second. Timothy in the third chapter, beginning with the 16th verse, listen for God's Word. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And to the letter to the Hebrews in the fourth chapter, <clears throat> the twelfth and thirteenth verse. The Word of God is living and active, <clears throat> sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before Him no creature is hidden. But all are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> Will you pray with me, please? 
Loving God, we do not come to your word alone, but we come seeking you while you may be found and calling upon you while you are near. Lord, we ask that by your spirit we would be able to return to you that you have mercy upon us. As we come to your word today, we realize that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your way is not our way. But Lord, reveal your thoughts and your way to us in ways that we can understand. And as you send your word to us today, both read and proclaimed as rain and snow fall from the heaven, may it water our souls and the seed by your spirit that you have planted there, that we would feel your word, your living word growing in our lives that we might be a rich harvest to you for your word does not return to you empty but accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. So prosper us in that way and for the purpose that you have sent your word to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. And let all God's children say, Amen. Well, I saw Elwood and Jake making their way down the aisle and then Lisa got up here and started handing out hats and glasses and said, you have to wear these. And I said, no, we don't. She said, yes, you do. To your own peril, you will not wear them. So I handed a pair of glasses and a hat to Nathan and said, put these on. And if you do not, it is to your own peril. And he said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Today is the third installment in a series looking at the five solas, the five pillars of our faith in the Reformed tradition and really in the Christian tradition. We began by looking at the pillar that we are saved by grace alone. Secondly, through faith alone. Today, we will look that we are saved by the authority of God's Word alone. And then next week, by Christ alone, and then finishing up to the glory of God alone. And each one of these five pillars are important. They stand alone, yes, but they stand together. For if any one of these pillars is found wanting and is not strong to uphold the structure of our faith and to stand upon the rock of our faith, then the whole thing collapses. All five stand together and all five must be strong. Today we look at Scripture alone as our means of salvation by the authority of God's Word. The date was April 18, 1521, and Martin Luther has been summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to appear before the empirical diet in Worms, Germany for the express purpose of recanting his writings. Despite the warnings of his friends not to appear, Martin Luther has fearlessly traveled from Wittenberg, Germany to Worms. And all along the way, in every village, he has stopped and preached the Word of God. They've said that that journey from Wittenberg to Worms is much like unto a missionary journey of, of the Apostle Paul himself with that kind of importance and power. There in Worms, the political and the ecclesiastical hierarchy has gathered to confront Martin Luther in a heresy trial 
And there Martin Luther stands with his books on a table before him. And Johann Eck, who is representing Rome, the Pope, had two questions for Martin Luther. Number one, Martin Luther, are these your books? And number two, will you recant? Sensing the magnitude of the moment, Luther retired for the evening. And then he appeared the next day before the council. And he spoke these now famous words. Martin Luther said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. The Scriptures I have noted. And my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience held captive to the Word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And with that, it is the shot that is heard around not only the Christian world, but the entire globe. And the church is never the same again. By this bold assertion, Martin Luther declared that the Bible is the highest authority in the life of the church as revelation to Jesus Christ as God's Son. It is the ultimate and supreme authority. Authority above popes, above councils, above creeds, above confessions, above culture. This was the public declaration to what would soon become known as sola scriptura. Scripture alone. To this point in history, the Roman Catholic Church had espoused to Scripture and tradition. Scripture and ecclesiastical councils. Scripture and the Pope. Scripture and fill in the blank. But Luther courageously took, this, took his stand and he said that it is Scripture and Scripture alone upon which we must stand. And that is where He stood. Too many times we are so prone to want to fall back into Scripture and something else. To add to God's Word. I remember what Martin Luther said when he said the Holy Spirit is the author of this book. We must attribute to the Holy Spirit all of the Holy Scripture. It is God's Scripture. God's Word. God's Word holds us solely to His Word. That we may learn to despise the great cry, Luther said. The cry of church, church. Fathers, fathers. The church cannot err. The church cannot err. I think of the process that officers in our church, both deacons and elders, go through as a part of orientation and training for their office. 
And some of you who have been through that in the last dozen years may remember in the book that you are given this rather cartoonish, this rather simple drawing. And it is shaped like a bullseye. And on the fourth ring of the bullseye is written the book of order, which is part of our Constitution that tells us how we are to worship, how we are to discipline ourselves, how we are to govern ourselves. The book of order in the fourth ring. Then you move in a ring. And it says the book of confessions. These are the historical documents in the life of the church written at particular times for particular reasons. A revelation of God in the life of the church in that specific moment. The book of confessions. And then you move in. Then you have Holy Scripture as the next bullseye and at the very center, Jesus Christ. And so too many times we want to flip around what it is that we're aiming at and what it is that is important and authoritative in our lives. This morning I want to say that the Bible is our first authority over our constitution of creeds and of our book of order. I want to say this morning that the Bible is infallible. And by that we mean that the Bible, God's Word, will not fail us. His Word will not fail us. This morning I want to say that the Bible is inerrant. And by that I mean that there might be some grammar that is suspect or a historical fact or a, 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 a piece of chronology that might be somewhat out of date. And that, that's not what we mean by that it, that it is inerrant. No, it means that the Bible cannot be found erroneous in the way of salvation. It can be trusted to be without error in that regard. And so this morning for the remainder of our time, and it will not be enough time, but what I want us to do is to look at the way that we rightly handle this word of truth, this authoritative word, this inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God to us. I think any time in the life of a church is a good time to be reminded how we handle God's word. But particularly in this time in the life of this church, when we are having discussions and conversation and debates and discernment, and we attend to God's Word and what, what is God's will for us. So we've put a handout in your bulletin. You're going to have to work a little bit. That's what liturgy means, the work of the people. You're not just passive observers. And so for those of you who love to take notes or carry something out with you, here it is. For those of you who have ADD, maybe this will help you. Stay with us. But we want to look at these seven guidelines for interpreting Scripture that have been given to us as a part of the Reformed tradition, as a part of even our own Presbyterian tradition. I thank Jack Rogers and Shirley Guthrie for their guidance in crystallizing these seven thoughts for us, these seven guidelines. These are careful, thoughtful steps of interpreting Scripture. Scripture that matters to each one of us in our everyday lives so that we may rightly handle the word of truth. These are guidelines, again, meant to be taken collectively like the five solas. These five guidelines need to be taken all together. We don't pluck one out and use it. 
These guidelines provide checks and balances so that no one will distort the truth of God's Scripture. And when we take these principles together, it will guard us from dissension and divisions in the body of Christ as we seek God's will and God's way. This is a constellation of guidelines given to us by our tradition. The first one, the first guideline for interpreting Scripture is to recognize Jesus Christ, the, cent the Redeemer, is the center of Scripture. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, is the center of Scripture. And here what we understand is that the Bible is a story. We went through the story a, a little more than a year ago in the life of the church. And we understood God's Word to be for us a story. And the Bible is a story with a central character. It is God as revealed in Jesus Christ. The Bible, we can say, is more like a novel than it is an encyclopedia. It's a simple story of our Christian faith. It has three major movements. First, God is the Creator. God made a good creation. That's the first movement of the story. The second movement is that we as humans created in God's image sinned and became alienated from God because of our sin. There's the tension in the story. And the resolution comes in the third movement that God did not leave us alone but came in the person of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, to restore our relationship with God by what Jesus was willing to do out of His love and obedience to the Father. And so the, the major movement is creation, fall, and redemption. And Jesus Christ is the central character of this narrative. And all of Scripture leads us to Jesus Christ. And, it, and Scripture should be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. The Barman Declaration says that Jesus Christ as He is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the Word of God we have to hear and in which we have to trust and obey in life and death. In the Confession of 1967, it says the Bible is to be interpreted in light of its witness to God's work of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ interprets Scripture for us as we read it through His life. Jesus is the best interpreter of Scripture. Jesus is the best interpreter of the prophecies of the Old Testament. When Jesus was in His hometown, Nazareth, and He was, he was launching his, his public ministry, He stood in His home synagogue and He said, today, as He read from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying that, that the Old Testament is being fulfilled in me. I am the fulfillment of God's Word. When Jesus was asked about divorce, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. Jesus goes back to Genesis. And Jesus says to those who would hear Him, haven't you read? Do you not have eyes? Do you not have ears? Do you not have synapses that, that connect? He didn't say all that. But he said, haven't you read that God created them in the beginning male and female? That the son should leave the father and mother and cleave and become one with his wife. 
Jesus is the best interpreter of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. He is the center. Just as our lives are redeemed by our personal relationship with Jesus, so our understanding of the Bible is illumined by looking at it through Jesus' message and ministry. Number two, the second guide is let the focus be on the plain text of the Scripture. And simply put, that means that we must deal with the text as it is. We must read the Bible as it is given to us and not look for what we want it to say or wish it would say. Some Bible scholars are better gymnasts and contortionists than they are readers of the plain text many times. The Bible didn't say this. It meant to say that. And because of this, that, and the other, and this particular interpretation, and we get away from the plain text. To read the plain text of Scripture means that we look at the literary units in which it is given to us. Epic poetry is not historical chronicle. Symbolic stories are not science. We focus on the plain text, and this means that we take seriously the real Bible. And do not substitute ideas that we, that we would prefer. But yes, we consider language. Yes, we consider social and cultural context. And yes, we consider the setting and the meaning to the original audience. We do not, but yet we do not only read it as, it is, as if it were meant for us to read in our day and our time, but to consider the time and the day in which it was read. And we consider completely the Scriptures they're both human and divine character in that regard. Number three, we depend upon the Holy Spirit in interpreting and applying God's message. Calvin spoke of understanding Scripture by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. We do not come to Scripture alone. We dare not come to Scripture without prayer. That's why we in every worship service have a prayer for illumination, to have our minds enlightened, to have our hearts synthesized, and to have our, our wills melted by the Holy Spirit so that we may understand what it is God's Word has to say to us and for us. We do not come to the Bible alone. Number four, We are to be guided by doctrinal consensus of the church, which is the rule of faith. We are guided by the doctrinal consensus of the church, which is the rule of faith. And rule of faith means that it is not some hard and fast law of faith, but it means the measure of faith. The amazing thing about the book of Confessions is that we see this rule of faith, this measure of faith, this consistency of faith, that it's true. It's the same measure of faith that we see repeated time and time again in the confessions, although they were written in different eras of history and Scripture written at different times, that there, there, there is clear continuity in the Christian message over time. In Calvin's work, he elaborates upon the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, seeing the continuity of this measure of faith, this life of faith by these documents. And as Presbyterians 
we believe that the church's consensus is more likely to be accurate than the opinion of individuals. And so we seek after this measure, this rule of faith, a doctrinal consensus in the church. It is important for us to do. It helps us guard from proof texting as well when we look at the measure of the, of the life of faith so that we don't pull one text out and try to use it as a club or a weapon to prove our point or to beat up somebody else. Here's my illustration for proof texting. When I was in the eighth grade, I read the story of Genesis, and it says about Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. And that was my proof text that God wanted all of us to take our clothes off and walk around naked. But heaven forbid that we should interpret the Scripture through the eyes of an individual eighth grade boy. Number five. Let all interpretation be in accord with the rule of love. We measure God's Word by love. The rule of love. This guide is grounded in the twofold commandment that Jesus gave. Love God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when someone is interpreting Scripture in a way that is demeaning to God or hurtful to neighbor, we would do well to consider the measure of love in Scripture. And that does not mean that love becomes squishy, soft, syrupy. Just love everybody. If it feels good, do it. No, that is not the kind of love that we see in Scripture. One of the most loving things that we can do for ourselves and particularly for our children is to give them boundaries and to give them some solidity to this love that it might teach us how to live and flourish and so we tell our children, there is a rule here. You do not touch a hot stove. You do not play in the busy street. And the reason that we do that is because we love our children. And God's love would give us rules of love as well. The Ten Commandments are given out of love. And it also means that we need to hear the voices of all of the community when we are interpreting God's Word in the lens of love. Number six, we must remember that interpretation of the Bible requires earnest study. Interpretation of the Bible requires earnest study. It's frightening to hear people stand up and say, the Bible says this and the Bible says that, and it's not accurate, and maybe the Bible doesn't say it, but have we studied it? Are we students of it? Do we rightly handle the Word of truth? And earnestly studying God's Word means that we have minds to know God, hearts to love God, and voices to sing God's praise. And God's Word in Romans 12 says, Worship the Lord your God by the renewal of your minds so that you may know what is the perfect will of God in Jesus Christ. We appreciate and honor the life of the mind in our church, and we need to be students of the Word. Much more to say, but number seven now. Seek to interpret a particular passage of the Bible in light of all of the Bible. And here we mean by this guide that the Bible interprets itself. We interpret parts of the Bible by the whole. We interpret the complexity of the Bible by the simple. 
We interpret the peripheral of Scripture by its central message. It's called the analogy of faith that is built upon the central unifying theme of the Bible that we started out by saying it is creation, it is fall, it is redemption in Jesus Christ. And Scripture is not, is, not, is not one thing, just one thing after another. No, it is a story that is connected about a person. And it is a story with a purpose, a purpose of redemption of our souls and salvation for the world. And so when we study God's Word in a particular passage, we listen to all of the Bible in conversation with itself. One Scripture talking to another, and we overhear God's Word illumining the truth for us. I have said from this pulpit, and it is true, we do not read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. And that is a faithful encounter with God's Word. And so here we have these seven guidelines, a wholesome constellation practiced by the reformers who have gone before us. And they assure for us two things. That we, when we use them, we understand that we are talking about the same thing. It unifies us in conversation. And secondly, it helps us deal with all facets of God's Word that need to be dealt with to rightly handle the Word of truth and to bring us to truth. And when we know truth, we know deeper relationships with God and a deeper relationship with each other. Thanks be to God for His Holy Word. And let us apply these guides as we study His Word together. Let me close with this story. It's a story about a young man named Bill who grew up in a small town, was a Christian his whole life, and he came to a larger city to go to college. Yet during his first year of college, he didn't go to church. He had too much else to do, and he enjoyed the freedom that he found. But on this one particular Sunday, which happened to be Easter, he decided to go to church. There was a church nearby. He had always seen it walking around the town, but it looked rather large and imposing. The place very different than the small little church that he had grown up in, but he got up enough courage to go to church on that Sunday. He felt drawn there, and so he put on his best t-shirt, his best pair of jeans that only had one hole in them. He pulled his hair back. He walked in the door. He had gotten up late, and so the service had already started. And as it is on an Easter Sunday in most churches, he found it very crowded and began to make his way down the aisle looking for an empty seat. And before he knew it, he, he was at the very front of the church. And not wanting to turn around with every eye he knew now staring at him, he simply, he simply sat down on the floor in front of the communion table. By this time, everybody in the church was looking at this young man, some horrified. Some wondering what would happen next. The preacher was even looking. But then an officer from the church, an elderly gentleman, got up with his cane and made his way down to the front of the church. And everybody knew that this older gentleman had to do what he had to do to send him to the back of the church or tell him to find a folding chair maybe in the balcony. And they all watched it unfold, knowing what would happen. But when the old man reached the young man, he laid his cane on the floor and lowered his aching tired body and sat down next to the young man. And when the preacher got up to preach, he held up his notes and he said, you probably won't remember one thing that I have said today. 
but what you have seen you will remember and never forget. And your life may be the only Bible that someone will read. That is why it is important for us to know what God's Word says, that we can be corrected and guided and empowered by it so that we can be about the good works that God prepared for us beforehand to do before the world. And so let us be about practicing what it is that we read and know to be true in here and out there. The world is watching. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.